Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. I'm Bharati Jagdish. Now, Malaysia's election on Saturday is likely to be close, with nearly a thousand candidates from dozens of parties vying for the hearts and minds of a record 21 million voters. With many voters struggling amid soaring inflation, they're also looking for whichever party can most convincingly promise economic and price stability. Now, other factors at stake in the contest for the 222 parliamentary seats include an economic slowdown and an end to the political chaos that's been engulfing the Southeast Asian nation in the past four years. A lot to talk about. And to do this, Shannon Teo joins us. He's Malaysia Bureau Chief at The Straits Times. Hi, Shannon. Hi, how are you guys doing? Doing well, and I hope you are too. I know you've been very busy. So on the (laughs) eve of the election, what is the state of play? Well, what we're looking at here is I think if you go around and ask every pundit in town, everyone saying it's too close to call, there's not going to be a clear winner. But if you ask the follow-up question about, okay, no clear winner, but who's going to win the most seats? Yeah. It's looking like a toss-up between uh, Anwar Ibrahim's Pakatan Harapan and uh, the Amno's uh, Barisan National, where, where you know the caretaker prime minister is from, Ismail Sabri. So that's what we're looking at, kind of trying to gauge who's going to finish first, second, third, so on and so forth. What's the possible arithmetic after the after the election on, on who could form government together? Mm. And that's the thing. I mean, with a coalition government, we can expect more in terms of movements, twists and turns, possibly, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the last time around, in 2018, Barisan National lost, London lost power for the first time in six decades of Malaysian history. And that already raised a fair bit of uncertainty. What's going to happen now? Is there really going to be a prime minister who's not from UMNO? And it did happen, but it took about 24 hours after the election for a new prime minister to be sworn in. That was Mahade. Now, this time, if there is no clear winner, I think people are probably prepared to wait more than one day, maybe two three days before the dust settles and, and the different coalitions come together and say, and agree on a new prime minister. But it could ostensibly take longer than that. Uh, we're talking about a lot of personality, personality clashes here, a lot of ideological clashes. It could be difficult to get people onto the same table. That's the thing. I think a lot of people have also mentioned that it's been a number of years of uncertainty, political uncertainty in the political landscape. To what extent do you think, Shannon, and based on your conversations with analysts, to what extent is there a sense that this is likely to continue for years? Well, I think that's the general feeling that even though some people would have said we need to have a general election just to draw a line under all the politicking that's been happening in the past few years, I don't think anyone really thinks that this is going to be the end of the story and that after this general election, we can put politics aside and concentrate on, you know, motherhood statements like nation building or economic recovery and things like that for the next four or five years. There is going to be continued politicking happening after this. I mean, for example, we know that six state governments didn't run concurrent polls with the federal elections. Mm. It means that some by sometime middle of next year, all these six states are going to have to elect new state governments because their term ends. Guess what we're going to have next year? Another round of campaign. So uh, this isn't going to end soon. And and most people think it's not going to end even in the long, kind of a medium term run in the next two or three years at least. 
But let's face it, whoever takes over, whichever of the coalitions finally takes power, they are going to have to start doing some real work, right? I mean, they'll have to tackle at least the economic challenges facing the country. I mean, that's the hope of all Malaysians, I guess. Whoever wins, whoever loses, that there is some kind of upside from having the general election now. Now, obviously, what happens is that if there isn't a recovery, the government's going to get punished at the next election. So whatever happens, I think that whichever government is going to be in place, they've got a big job on their hands. And it's going to be pretty tough, right? We're coming off the COVID pandemic. We're coming off the geopolitical headwinds, the hyperinflation, so on and so forth. And what are the tools, you know, what are, what's in the sandbox for the next government to solve these problems? We've been spending a lot of money. The fiscal space is you know, getting tighter. Um, I, well, I, I wouldn't envy the next finance minister, whoever that person's going to be. Before we speak further about what the priorities of the new government should be and whether there are any sort of concrete plans that any of the parties have presented, mm-hmm. the level of interest to vote in the election seems to be high. At least one survey by a think tank, the Institute Darul Ehsan, showed that mm-hmm. nearly... Eight in ten people say they will cast their ballots tomorrow. But we mustn't forget the flood factor, which could affect turnout, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so far, um, touch wood, uh, the, the, the flooding hasn't been too bad. There have been some isolated flash floods uh, here and there around the country, but nothing at the scale of what we saw last year. I mean, it's still November. The worst of the floods from last year will happen in December and January. Um, so for tomorrow it looks like most people will be able to go out to vote. If they intend to vote, they'll be able to. So a turnout of, as you mentioned, close to 8 in 10, right? And a lot of other surveys also point to a potential turnout of about 75% upwards. But that's going to be a huge number of voters. And and don't forget, I mean, we know that in GE 13 and 14, the the turnout was over 80%. But that was with an electorate, which which was a smaller size. And we've had automatic voter registration since then. So it's registered about close to 7 million people who weren't previously previously uh, registered. Now, for you to reach a 75% turnout, even with people who are... Let's put it this way, if, if you didn't bother to register yourself before, why would you turn out to vote this time, right? And the fact of 75% is actually pretty high. It actually shows much higher interest to vote than previously if you, you kind of crunch down the math. So we came into this campaign kind of with, with an atmosphere of, you know, political apathy, fatigue, so on and so forth. But it's looking like a lot of people are going to vote. Mm. And of course, a lot of analysts are saying that even if they show up to vote, the people affected by flooding might vote based on how those floods have been managed more recently. But, yeah, that's right. I mean, so is this, who, who will this, Favor, right? I mean, the, I guess yeah. with every factor, you, you, that's what we're thinking about. If it does flood in your area, who are you going to blame for it? And so it does matter where you are and, and what's happening in your area. Do you blame the federal government? Do you blame the, the existing state government? And so on and so forth, right? I mean, there's even, you can even go down to the locality, your local MP, so on and so forth. So it is very, it, you have to kind of dive down to the micro level. I mean, we've seen surveys talking about uh, national sentiment, splitting it down by ethnicity, by age. But this is not, even though it's a national election, it's not an election where you can kind of with a one sweep say that all Malays are going to vote this way, all young people are going to vote this way. There is a huge geographical factor. If you're on the East Coast, you have a different attitude from people on the West Coast, the North and the South. 
So it, it is very hard to read the ground. The, the Malaysians are not uh, monolithic mm. by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so even if you say if it starts flooding, I've got to ask you where. Right. And then kind of, yeah, you know, uh, kind of dice down the, the arithmetic from there. Yeah, certainly people are complex, aren't they? And political parties have to bear that in mind. You yeah. mentioned the youth voters several times and mm. clearly they are going to be playing a pretty pivotal role here. And I know you say it's a complex environment. You can't say all youth will vote a certain way. Yeah. But what is the sense you're getting in terms of which parties have convinced the youth the best? Yeah. yeah, well, I think with, with the youth voters, the general sentiment is that they are a bit more anti-establishment, right? Uh, they come in and they, they're questioning everything. So the problem with this is that all three coalitions have been in government this past five years, or four years rather. And so if you are unhappy with something, who exactly do you blame? Where did this source of your problem, whether it's joblessness or high cost of housing, so on and so forth, hyperinflation... Who didn't deal with that properly? Who didn't deal with COVID properly? And so it's a very complex, again, a very complex kind of narrative which which the political parties have to kind of navigate. You know, if they kind of gloom onto an issue, you want to say that it's the other coalition's fault, but it could turn around and bite you in the back. So I think what the surveys tell us generally is that young voters are not with Barisan National and Malay young voters are very much with Perikatan Nasional. That's the coalition that has Muhyiddin Yassin as its, as its uh, chairman and has uh, Party Islam to Malaysia as a, as a very important component of uh, that coalition. So what we feel is that based on what they answer to other questions about corruption so and so forth, is the sense that a lot of young Malays do want a kind of a Malay-led party to lead the country, but they feel that AMNO has not kind of solve its internal issues of corruption and so on and so forth. So they feel that the next best alternative is the likes of Basatu and, and uh, PAS, right? Because they are Malay-led, but, you know, they, they haven't developed this, this perception of being riddled with corruption the way Amno has. Right. And speaking of the various figures, I mean, opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim, the most popular leader among respondents of that survey that I was talking about earlier, over 31% saying that they have confidence that the party Keadilan Rakyat president can lead Malaysia. But of course, age is catching up with him and this election could be his last chance to win the top job. What do you think? Can Anwar finally become prime minister? What is the sentiment on the ground? Well, you know, he probably is the most popular if candidate among Malaysians. But again, the question is, where is he most popular? And he is most popular in urban centres among, in fact, largely non, non-Malay voters. The problem with that is because of the way uh, the seats are apportioned, because of decades of gerrymandering and so on and so forth, you get seats, urban seats, where Anwar might be popular. For example, Bangi. Uh, and that's expected to go to Pakatan Harapan. There are 300,000 voters in that one constituency alone. Now, this is more than the entire state of Perlis, and it's 10 times larger than the smallest constituency, which is somewhere in Sarawak that's only got 10,000 voters. So you can be more popular, but if all your voters are voting in the same constituency, it doesn't win you more seats. Mm. And this is a game of seats, not a game of voters, right? It doesn't matter how many votes you get. It's about how many MPs you have. So he might still be stuck 
in a situation where a lot of people vote for Pakatan Harapan and Pakatan Harapan does win a, a good number of seats, maybe the most, but they don't cross that magic number of 112. Where does this leave his hopes of becoming Prime Minister? Well, unfortunately for him, not very bright because as you've seen even before Parliament was dissolved on, on October 10, right? Pakatan Harapan was the largest bloc. They had 90 MPs. No one else had as many, but they weren't in government. There is a reluctance among the rest of the parties and among the rest of the political leaders to form a government with Anwar Ibrahim, to form a government with some of the parties like uh, DAP, it, which are in Pakatan Harapan. So that remains the case. And mm-hmm. if, say, for example, Pakatan Harapan wins 90 seats again uh, after Saturday, it's like we've gone back to square one, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's clear that it's all kind of up in the air right now. And if there is no clear majority, as we mentioned earlier, we may again see political groups forging new alliances. Objectively speaking, though, and based on analysts' comments, who has presented the most feasible policy and who's likely to be prime minister? Well, I think uh, in terms of Policy manifestos, right? What they present to the public during the campaign and and all their promises. Barisan National has is the most full of what you might call goodies, right? They've they've actually promised something pretty progressive, a universal basic income and things like that. Um, Prikatan and Pakatan haven't gone so far. They look more realistic with their promises. A, a lot of the, the the pledges have to do with the economy, to do with the with the cost of living, to do with uh, housing prices, public transport. Um, they do touch on largely the same same points: uh, job creation, obviously. Now, the the thing is this, though: no one's really kind of looking at the manifestos. There isn't really a sense when we go and talk to people and they say that, oh, I saw this party's manifesto and I'm really excited by it mm. and I'm going to vote for that party. Even though economic concerns are number one and, and first and foremost on most people's minds, I think they're all going to vote based on track record or their perception of how each coalition might deal with economic issues. So, for example, I think this puts Ismail Sabri, the, the, the incumbent, in, in, in good stead because he's been able to go around the country and say that I've rolled out more subsidies, nearly 80 billion ringgit this year. This is more than any other prime minister before. I really care about you guys. I really care about inflation. So I think that number really sticks. A lot of people do feel the heat of inflation, but they do also know that a lot of subsidies and mm. uh, a lot of cash that has been rolled out. Now, um, so if we talk about who is most likely to become prime minister, in the event that there is, well, a coalition of more than one coalition, right, in, in government, it does put Ismail Sabri in a good position. Uh, he was a ca- compromised candidate before, as you mentioned, even though Pakatan, Harapan and 90 MPs, it was all the other parties that formed government and they agreed on Ismail Sabri. Uh, it's likely that they'll do so again because... It's a formula that worked before. Mm. Um, and I think that most parties will want to form government, at least be part of government first, secure that. And then if there is going to be any wheeling and dealing coming up in the future, well, there's still time for that, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> of course. Governments have changed hands before. So. Mm. It seems there's always time for that. Uh, Shannon, <laughs> one last thing. Uh, As Malaysia's neighbour, Singapore, of course, will be watching this closely. Mm -hmm. What can we expect in terms of the political and economic relationship and its evolution? Well, I I 
think that uh, there was a point, right, if you remember back in 2018 after Mahade came into power and he started going around cancelling all sorts of things and trying to revi- revise a lot of different things. Yeah. There's quite a fair bit of angst in Singapore about what, what's he doing? Why is he, you know, ripping up all sorts of contracts? And as it turned out, not everything was changed. One or two things changed. But largely, I think people of both countries you know, got along with their lives, got along with their relationships, whether they were people to people, business to business, even government to government, right? I think even there is uh, leader, leader retreats, they, they kept happening every year. There was the Iskanda Joint Ministerial Committee sort of thing. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but mm. those meetings continue to, to proceed. A lot of this is, is, is political bluster, right? Um, and uh, politicians need to be seen as very big nationalist, right? I'm more nationalist than you are kind of kind of uh, game that's going on. Uh, whoever comes into power after this, I, I, I will expect them to want to change policies or even big mega projects, flip around some of these deals, and some of them might involve Singapore. But at the end of the day, you know, it's diplomacy is diplomacy. And, and if you look at what's happened over the past four years since 2018, despite all those announcements of cancelling projects and trying to revise water supply deals and so on and so forth. Hmm. Um, a lot of it hasn't really moved forward. You know, um, these things can't happen with a snap of the finger. Uh, there's, you know, the, the statecraft. It's not like playing fantasy football. <laughs> exactly. Right. Players as you like. Right, um, right, right. It's all going to be managed quite delicately and well. Thank you so much, Shannon. Shannon Teo, Malaysia Bureau Chief at The Straits Times. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.